good to be back. I missed you guys last week and just really blessed to know most of you got the email, thankful for the ways that God has used the word last week to just encourage many and, uh, and edify your hearts and souls as uh, Michael brought the word from uh, Luke 4 and the temptation of Jesus last week. So uh, good to be back. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. You can grab one. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take that. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have that. Uh, we believe that is God's sufficient word for you and the, the best book you will ever read or know, uh, for it's God's revelation given to us. And uh, if you're just visiting, jumping in, popping in, visiting with a friend, family member, or this is the first time here with us, really are glad that you're with us, just so you know what this is. So there's no confusion. It's just a, a very simply a worship service. And we do three main things in a worship service. Uh, we worship one person who is Jesus, the, the perfect Son of God, who is infinite in righteousness, holiness, and all that he does. And, and we do that three kind of main ways. One, we, we sing songs like you're hearing that talk about who he is and what he's done for us, namely in the person work of the cross of Christ, in which he took on sin, bore it, killed it in the grave, rose again, ascended, and offers forgiveness, reconciliation with God. We also worship Jesus because of that by listening to the scriptures by sitting under the teaching of God's word. We're walking through the book of Luke right now. Uh, we love to just open up books of the Bible and just walk through uh, books um, and just see what God might reveal about himself. So we worship him that way. We also worship Jesus by giving. If you consider this your church home, you know we give in the small black box in the back. Many of you guys give online. Thank you for your uh, faithfulness in that way and uh, the ways that God is using that to move this mission forward. So um, why don't we take a second and just, just clear our hearts. You know I say often, we all come in this room with, with uh, just the week. And uh, sometimes it's good just to kind of uh, give these things over to him so that we can clearly hear what he might want to say. So let's uh, just have a minute with him. Whatever is just bearing on your mind, your heart, maybe there are anxieties, maybe there are deep cares, right cares. Maybe there are some things that are just troubling your soul. Might you find rest in the person and work of Christ. I use your performance this morning for you. There's no condemnation for you, whatever happened this past week. That the blood that was shed only needed to be shed one time. That the death he took for you in your place to pay your debt, he only had to do one time. Just thank him for that. God, we're a, we're a needy people. We need you. We need your spirit to illumine hearts and eyes this morning, ears. God, we desperately need our affections to be redirected this morning. God, forgive us this week for the many moments where we have chosen other things that are of infinitely lesser value than you. God, may you revive us this morning. May you set our gaze back to where it should be. May we solely rely consistently, daily, faithfully on finished work of Jesus for our entire righteousness, for our entire salvation, for our entire right standing before you. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 4. And I uh, just want to get you guys caught up to speed. If you are uh, jumping in later, you haven't kind of followed along with, with a number of these, here's what's basically happened. We saw that Luke is writing this book. Luke is a physician. He's a historian. He is someone who traveled along with Paul. He's actually one of the most dedicated people who went with Paul. He kind of hung in all the way to the end with him. We see this deep love he had for the people of God. And he's writing to this guy, Theophilus, who is uh, really uh, not a Christian, probably a Roman official. He is skeptical of the life and teachings of Jesus, and he wants to be sure of them. Luke wants him to be sure of the life and teachings of Jesus. Not that you can be sure of his life and teachings, but you can not only know they're true, but be transformed by them. So I've said forever here that this is not just a book that we want to read just to learn facts. So we're not just going to learn facts and leave here quoting facts. We want to be changed by them. We want to be transformed by looking at and seeing the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so what we saw throughout the, the last four chapters was God kind of paving the way as he broke his silence after 400 years of not speaking, saying, hey, the deliverer is here, the Messiah is here, the one that will atone for sin, the one that will be a sacrifice, the one that will be a substitute, the one that will take on the right wrath of God towards sin in your place. And, and he's going to do all that. This, this Messiah is coming because it had been dark 
for centuries with Israel, right? They were longing for this Messiah. Now, we're going to see specifically and kind of exceptionally this morning that, that he didn't really come the way they thought they wanted him to come. So we're going to see somehow it doesn't look quite like they thought it would look. But they knew they wanted this Messiah. And they knew that they were anxiously awaiting this Messiah to deliver them from enemies, to deliver them from oppression, to deliver them from the government. And so he is finally here. He gives the promise to um, Mary, right? We saw also the promise to his forerunner John, to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Both miracles, both profound works of God working and establishing these two sons. And then we saw Jesus' baptism, the beginning of his ministry, kind of, you know, quasi with the temptation, seeing him overthrow Satan and hell and sin, and that he is victorious over that, that he's our champion, he's our hero, he's our leader. What you're going to see this morning is him get into his Galilean ministry. Now, like Luke just kind of shoots in about a a little bit late, because if you read John, he covers kind of the first couple events in his ministry, which was the wedding at Cana, where he turns water into wine. He treks up north. There's a Samaritan woman at the well. She finds salvation in Jesus. Now he's coming down for his Galilean ministry. This lasts like a year and a half. Okay, so really, you can go all the way to like Luke chapter 9, and that's his Galilean ministry. So this is kind of inaugurating it, and we're going to stay in this for a good while. So um, he's going to be doing that. He's going to be walking us through what Jesus does in Galilee. And Luke is about to lay before us one of the first sermons Jesus preaches. And, and here's what you're going to see basically happen. The people love him. Then they get defensive, then they get really angry and want to kill him. Okay, that, that's just basically how it's going to go. And then it's going to kind of stay that way the rest of this book. Okay, to where ultimately they want to kill him on a cross. So you're going to see them love his teaching, seem to love his preaching, seem to love the things that he's saying. And then they're going to get defensive at some of the things he says. And they're ultimately going to want to throw him off a cliff and kill him. Okay, happy day. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start in verse 14 where uh, Luke just kind of rolls this out more as a summary as we get into it. Here's what he says in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, right? He's coming down south, back to this town to start this ministry. And a report about him went out throughout the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Okay, so Jesus begins this ministry, and I love this because how does Jesus begin his ministry? Preaching and teaching. You know, we're not going to do a sermon on the, the importance and paramount of preaching in the local church, but you guys might have walked in, turned the corner, saw our four identities. One says word-driven, and we've said a lot here that we believe in the sufficiency of the Word of God, how the preaching ministry of the Word of God is, is primary and paramount for the sanctification of saints and the, also the salvation of sinners, right? So we're never going to, like, throw away preaching. You're never going to show up, and all of a sudden there's something cute with elephants and giraffes, and we're just going to show you a video. We're going we're gonna to keep preaching the Bible because we believe that this is what transforms the soul. Okay, and God has always, throughout redemptive history, used the preaching of God's word to build up the body, which is his church. And so you see Jesus do this by just going out and preaching and teaching. He's preaching in synagogues. And that's where the people of God would gather. There were probably 240 or so in Galilee. So we don't know how many he went to, but he's, he's going around. He's preaching. He's teaching, kind of doing an itinerant ministry. It says he, he's glorified by all. That doesn't mean that they, they believed him as the Messiah. There's just a good buzz going on. They just liked what he was doing. They spoke well of him. Okay, they liked what they saw. He's this new preacher. They've never seen anything like it. Um, and so he's being glorified by all. Everyone's talking about him. News is traveling all over the place. That Man, have you heard this guy, Jesus? Have you heard about the thing he did down in Capernaum? Do you hear about him turning water into wine? Right? There's this, naturally that would happen, right? If you heard about someone down in South Jersey who was all of a sudden raising people to life, you'd be like, did you hear about that guy? Right? News would start traveling. So that's nothing new. News is traveling around. News is catching up with them. And so here Jesus is going to preach and give a sermon that is so unlikely Okay, and in a sense, they're going to kind of understand it. He's going to show them how you really don't understand it. Okay, he's going to get up and he's going to be particular. He's going to look in Isaiah for a specific text. He's not just like doing our classic sword drill for devotions, you know. Oh, awesome. We read, right? He, he is particular. Okay, he's going he's gonna to pull out a text and read it because of who's <laughs> listening to him, these Jewish people in the synagogue. Here's what he says in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth. This is his hometown where he was brought up. As was his custom, Jesus went to church. Jesus gathered with the people of God. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stands up to read. What they would do is they would stand for the reading, then they'd all sit down and listen to the sermon. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and sat down, and all the eyes, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Okay, so Jesus is back in his hometown. He heads to the synagogue. This is normal for Jesus. People growing up with Jesus used to see him. Remember we saw that early on when he left his family and kind of waited there when they were taking the caravan back to Bethlehem. They saw that, hey, they're, they're still there. He's still there. He wants to learn. He wants to hear. And, and here's what is just beautifully ironic. God himself is about to give a sermon about himself. Right, I mean, this is the first time in the, in the history of mankind where that's happened with someone in, in human flesh. Right? So, so the God-man Jesus is getting up, he's opening up, and he's reading a messianic prophecy from Isaiah that's about him. Okay, here's going to be the, the further ironic thing is, yes, he's talking in a global sense, but he's talking in a particular sense to those who are listening. You're going to see him show, hey, this is for you. This is for you what, what I'm saying. So Jesus gets up. It's an unusual Sabbath, not like a normal one. And he preaches this sermon. Someone this is a passage everyone in the room would have known. Everyone in the room would have been familiar with this passage in this text in Isaiah. And he reads the prophecy of the, the coming Messiah, how it's, and he kind of gives you four signposts, okay? Kind of gives you four of them. He gives you good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed. Now, each of these things that he's giving you are metaphoric pictures of the desperate condition of man. That's what he's showing you, okay? Is he talking in a physical sense? Yes, but he's ultimately talking about the spiritual sense. Let's just briefly roll through these four, right? Good news to the poor. This is, this is now, does he go after and help and show compassion to the poor? Absolutely, but here he's particularly talking about spiritual bankruptcy. Okay, that's what he's getting at here. Like, you can't barter with God. You can't buy grace. Like, God gives grace freely. He gives himself freely. So if, if you don't understand that you are spiritually destitute, spiritually depraved, that there's nothing you can do to, to buy grace from God or earn merit from God or earn favor from God, that needs to be the posture of a heart who's going to find help. This is, this is good news to that person, right? This is good news to that person that realizes, man, I can't do this thing. I can't attend church or bring in my neighbor's trash can enough or tithe enough or give nonprofits enough or I can't do it. Jesus does it. His provisional cleansing work of Christ and Christ alone is my salvation to a poor and needy, idolatrous man. So he's going, man, this is good news to the poor. Okay, that's the first one he shows that it is about Christ, period, to the, to the spiritually destitute. There's no partiality in the kingdom. In a culture that is just designed, even today, right, what you wear, work, how you live, that, that's your status. That's how you get worth and value, not the kingdom of heaven, right? Solely based on your worth in Christ, which is infinite. Your identity is there. It's fixed there. So here's what he is showing is that he's going to give himself, atone for sin. You'll be rich in him, have a new family, new retirement plan. All the nuts and bolts. You get the universe. You're a co-heir with Christ. And he says, liberty to the captives. This is good news. He's talking about enslavement, like you're a prisoner, a prisoner that wants to be freed. He's going to give liberty to those people, right? Apart from Christ in the scriptures, it's going to tell us that we are in prison to sin, not just to sin, but even outward actions of sin, the nature of sin. So whatever your nature of sin that's bearing an outward action, whether it's addiction, food, greed, lust, just insert it. He's going to free you from that. He's going to free you from your captivity to sin. And, and, and whatever your functional God is, whatever your functional Savior is, right? That's, that's enslaving you. And you think that functional God and Savior is going to be the thing to liberate you. It's actually further enslaving you. And that's why this is the irony of this idea, which is most people who are enslaved in their sin think they're free. And they think that Christ comes to put them in greater bondage. Right? You want to put parameters around me, block me in, keep me in, don't infringe on my rights, my wants, my then I do what I want. Right? Well, he shows you that if you if you run that cul-de-sac in your life, you just get deeper and deeper, growing in bitterness and anxiety and frustration and all those things because you're trying to be your functional God. You're you're terrible God. You didn't design things the way to work in the right way. So God knowing how everything works, how everything's designed, says, Hey, I'm gonna free you from that, so you're free to love Christ and enjoy him and worship him instead of being a slave by your addictions. Listen, if any of you in this room, and you understand this, you are an addict to something, you know you're enslaved. You know that that's just a prison cell. 
You're not free. I talk to guys all the time. Oh, I'm free because I can look at pornography whenever I want. You're not free. I'm free because I don't have to. Because I don't need that for satisfaction or for longing or for companionship. My identity is not in, in a sexual want or lust. It's in Christ. And, and one day that's all I'm going to have. And he's going to be enough. So who's really free? Right, he's going he's to liberate the captives. He's going to bring freedom there. Praise God. Sight to the blind. Love this one. Jesus. Now Jesus is going to go on and physically heal the blind. He's talking spiritually again. Those who don't see the goodness of God, don't see the goodness of Christ, don't see the good saving work of him, he's going to actually illuminate their eyes and give them sight. Like John 9, 25, man, I was so blind. Now all I know is I see. That's all I know. Right? I mean, I love some of your stories right, about your conversion. You, you were somewhere like totally not wanting, not desiring, maybe even came begrudgingly to church or a, or a service. And all of a sudden you, you heard a sermon and, and literally in an instant when you hated the things of God, didn't like it, didn't think they were good, didn't think they were beautiful, all of a sudden, all of a sudden they were beautiful and good. And you're like, well, what happened there? Did I eat the right cereal? Did I change up my, my like, you know, order of service in the morning? No, that was the Holy Spirit of God intervening and saying, hey, I want you to see the goodness of Christ, the goodness of God. Those who don't see their spiritual bankruptcy will see it. Those who don't see their captivity to sin will see it, and he will free them and liberate them. He will give sight to the blind. What good news for the blinded, the, those who don't see their sin is serious. Jesus isn't central. He isn't Lord. He isn't their treasure. He will be. He will become central. He will become their Lord. He will become their treasure for the good of their soul. Amazing. So in all these, you're seeing Jesus replacing a burdensome slave master with a good master who's for your good and for your joy. That's what we're seeing here. The last one is liberty to the oppressed. And, and this is not so much the, the prisoner to sin, but the effects of sin. So the pain that you feel in life, the burdens, the oppressive nature of it. Despair from abusive relationships, right? Overwhelmed by troubles, anxiety, the person who has lost all joy, Jesus will liberate not only from the power of sin, but from the effects of sin. And, and the main source of oppression here, and you've you got to understand this, was the utter burden to these people of trying to uphold the law. That was their oppression. These religious leaders who followed it all, did it all, they were oppressed by that. So he's going, hey, I'm going to free you from that. I'm going to actually uphold it perfectly for you so you don't have to. So when you stumble and fall and fail, maybe you look at me, the one who was your ultimate redeemer, savior, and king. This is good news to them. Those who are, who are a burden and oppressed. So Jesus comes, takes the whole burden of you trying to keep all those commands. So this is even for the religious guy. The guy who tries to do it all, merit it all. He's going to liberate you from not feeling oppressed by that. Okay, so now every other belief system that, that functionally works, there's oppression on you trying to climb the ladder or do something to get him to like you more. And Christianity flips it on its head and says, no, that's not how it happens. You now beg him for mercy, and he comes down and liberates you from that oppressive environment, way to live, way to work. I, we say this all the time. Christianity is the only belief system that has sacrifice, substitute, and atonement. He does it all for you. He literally stands in your place, credits you what he did. <laughs> And takes on you for you. Amazing. Amazing. He's going to do all of these things. That's why later Jesus will say what? He's going to give you rest. If you're burdened. If you're oppressed. If you're heavy laden. Because I've done it. I've done it. Look at me. Look at me. Right? I've done it. Amazing. So Jesus. And this is good. So Jesus finishes reading. Rolls up the scroll. Goes and sits down. And all the people are like. That's it. Right? Like, aren't you going to do some exegesis? Aren't you going to do an expository sermon? Right? So they want to hear him. They know he's a great orator. They know he's the best they've ever heard. Jesus, listen, was the best preacher that will ever and has ever walked the planet. So, you know, whoever you've got in your category, they're good, but they're not Jesus, right? I mean, imagine just, just the, the way about him that he spoke. And we got glimpses in the Gospels, right? But this man was infinitely brilliant. And he's giving this sermon. He's giving this conversation. And he just goes and he sits down. And they're sitting there literally on the edge of their seat because you stand to hear the sermon or hear the reading of the scriptures or you sit to hear the sermon. They're literally on the edge of the seat going, okay, so how are these poor going to be made rich? 
I mean, I mean, how are the blind going to see? How are those who are oppressed by the Roman government going to be liberated? Right? And then Jesus says something crazy to a Jewish mind what he, in the way that he answers. Verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today the scriptures have been fulfilled in your hearing. That's a weird one. If you're a Jewish mind sitting there listening to this, and all spoke well of him, marveled at his gracious words that were coming out of his mouth, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? So Jesus sits down and basically goes, hey, this prophecy you just heard about the Messiah that is going to come and, and liberate and free and give sight, that's me. I'm your riches. I'm your liberation. I'm your sight. I'm your freedom from enslavement to sin. He, he's, he's claiming deity. He's saying, man, all of these things are fulfilled in me. I'm who the promise is about. And again, here is the irony of him saying this. They don't realize he's talking to them. Okay? You're going to see this unfold. (laughs) Which is why they're going to get defensive. Which is why they're going to wrestle a little bit with what he's saying. Now, I love this because good sermons press you, right? I mean, it's a terrible sermon if it doesn't, doesn't invade any bad spaces in your life. It's not a good sermon. I mean, it needs to. So we, we find healing. We find mending. We find better ways to walk in light of who he is, in light of his person and work. And so here he says, today the scriptures have been fulfilled in your hearing. And so here's what you've got to understand is he says this and everyone listening to him, here's what they think. Oh, my gosh. He's going to make all of us who are poor rich now. Oh, he's going to overthrow Herod because we're all enslaved and oppressed by this Roman government. He's going to become king. He's going to become king and and just dictate a law that makes us all morally live the same. No, he's not. Jesus didn't come to overthrow a wicked government. He came to save sinners and do the Father's will, right? And so we're going to to see that here. And so everyone's listening to Jesus, the best teacher who ever lived. And and they're going, as they're hearing, they're going, wait a second. Isn't this Joseph's son? Wasn't he like just a carpenter? And he wasn't trained. I mean, how does he speak like this? How does he say things like this, right? They're just, they're just confused at, at how he can do what he's doing. They're confused at how can he be such a good teacher? I mean, you guys remember, right? I mean, this is the same kid, right, who we've watched grown up, watched mature, who's been in the synagogue. And as Jesus says these things, and, and notice it says, all spoke well of him. They seem, they think they like what he's saying. They think they like he's preaching. They're not really sure. There's a positive buzz going around as they're speaking well of him. But they don't realize that Jesus wasn't there in this stage of the game for vengeance. He came for salvation. Now, ultimately, judge and justifier, he'll be back. Okay, he'll have his vengeance, his right, perfect vengeance and judgment on all sin that is not given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But in this stage of the game for him, as he incarnates and comes, he's not coming for vengeance. He's coming for salvation. All the Jewish people wanted was vengeance against those who oppressed them and abused them, their enemies, which is why you're going to see Jesus say what he says, which is going to get very interesting. So Jesus isn't here to correct Government, he came to offer salvation to those who were what? Spiritually poor, spiritually blind, spiritually oppressed, spiritually bankrupt. Now, I want to take just a second to do a cul-de-sac side sermon for just a minute (laughs) on the latest announcement of the Supreme Court's decision on legalizing same-sex marriage because I think that this rolls into that. And let me just say, I know many of you are very political, so that's okay. I'm not, okay? I'm a Christian. I, I, I vote for who I think is right to vote for. I believe God puts them in office. He has full authority ruling over them. So if you are, that's great. If you disagree with this, that's okay. But, but here's what my concern is that in the Supreme Court decision, as I think mo- many of us are fighting the wrong fight, and, and we're kind of viewing it, even looking back at this, 
not the way we should be viewing it. Now, let me say this. I'm not saying, because I know you're, please hear this. I'm not saying that you don't have a right to publicly voice and say God's truth, God's goodness. Absolutely. It's our civil duty and right. I mean, are we to hold unwavering to truth and God's design for marriage? Yes. Okay, so I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we don't get involved in the public square. I'm just going to say, I don't think we put our flag in the ground there. Okay, I don't think we go after changing government. We go after making disciples. Because here's what you're going to see, okay? Historically, you see the gospel transform people, okay? Transform individuals. And what does that do? That begins to transform cultures, Okay, this is what the, the, the people of Israel wanted. They wanted Jesus. And you'll just read your New Testament. You'll see them over and over want to just make him king. Why? They wanted to dictate a law that everyone followed. You can't legislate Christianity. Like you never will. So, so if we're just constantly trying to get laws in place which aren't bad but in themselves, but if that's where your fight is and you're not loving your neighbor, you're not living wisely, winsomely, lovingly, trying to go aggressively make disciples that will, we believe, ultimately change cultures, you're fighting the wrong fight okay so 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 here's what we do you'll see the pharisees go in there trying to make jesus king he's like well i don't want to be king so who do we pay taxes to try to sneak in behind him i mean he's so wise and winsome in the ways that he says that's not why i came i didn't come to correct government or change government i came to change culture through my church who are my people so we live rightly that way further let me just remind us that's why we have no reason to panic now, I'm looking around the landscape going, people are freaking out. Like, God has somehow jumped off his throne. And, it's June 2015. I didn't know that law was going to get passed. And I thought I'd put restrictions around that. Is God deeply grieved by it? Yes. Should we be deeply burdened by the wickedness and moral incorrectness that is not in line with what God has laid out? Absolutely. But listen, we go after our call, which is primarily making disciples. And I see more people just trying to legislate stuff than actually being a Christian who looks left and right where they live. Says, man, maybe I should go share the gospel with them or look at the way he's called me to help transform culture. That if I think that's going to win anything, I'm I'm far off. Mm -hmm. And, And the Bible will continue to say he'll call us exiles, sojourners, aliens, citizens of another kingdom. (coughs) So the government's been legislating morally wicked laws for years, just so you know. I mean, abortion, that's been happening for... So so, so here's what I want us to to know. God's on his throne. We beg God to work and intervene. We pray for our leaders. We pray for God to give us wisdom as we live as the church so that as, as we start deeply embedding and rooting the gospel and the spheres of influence he's placed us, that begins to transform and change cultures. And we don't expect a decidedly unchristian government to live like exiles, sojourners, and foreigners. Listen, you're never going to feel comfortable here. Like, if you're trying aggressively just to get everything to work out so that you, everyone lives the same, like, that'll never happen until glory. But God has called us to live in such a way where, yes, and so this is another good question. If you feel like you're, you're conform in the other side, do you feel like you're conforming more to culture than to Christ? It's, it's good to ask yourself where your heart is, where your allegiance is. If culture is just sweeping you up in the whole thing, going, yeah, and you know what, I guess it doesn't really matter. And I, I mean, where's your allegiance? Because if you're a foreigner, if you're an exile, if you're an alien, you shouldn't feel at home. We don't feel at home here. But God's called us to submit to our leaders, to pray for them, <coughs> as we love one another and declare viciously, seriously, the truth. We don't shrink back from that. But I just want to make sure that we are understanding God's call on our lives primarily. Because that will create a church that is a bright, visible witness to everyone around a culture that's a train wreck, that can't figure it out, that's morally incapable of having any understanding of truth or how things should be. And So let's just continue to press that direction. Okay? And we, we, we rightly, absolutely... Vote and pray for God-fearing, Bible-loving leaders. Absolutely. But don't put your flag in the ground there. Because you know what? Your whole life you'll be frustrated. Because I can tell you from the garden on, 
It's never happened. And it never will happen until Jesus fully reigns and rules with his people and all is said and done. Okay, back to the text. Here we go. Sorry, just, I expect some good emails. Uh, and uh, I'd love the dialogue. I'd love to, I'd love to chat. Uh, okay. No, I love you guys so much. Okay, so back to the text. Amen. Here's where it shifts. It's the Jewish people are listening to Jesus say this. And, and that's why I'm sharing this, because it matters how we're feeling. These Jewish people are sitting there going, okay, he's here to change all the external things. He's here to fix our surroundings. Okay, Herod's no longer going to be king. Okay, we're going to have a good legislation. Jesus is here. The Messiah's here. Our enemies are no longer going to oppress us with laws. Okay, that's, that's what they're feeling. That's what they're thinking here. And they also are hearing Jesus say so crystal clearly because he's the best preacher ever preached. He's saying, I came for the spiritually poor, the spiritually blind, the spiritually oppressed, the spiritually destitute. This was the last thing they wanted to hear because they were so self-righteous and prideful. You watch, they're going to just put up a smoke screen. Now, this is amazing because we're going to see Jesus' omniscience. And he can do that because he's God. He's going to know what they're thinking and address it. Okay? So look, look at what he says. He reads their minds. I always wish I could do that. Don't you wish you could do this in a conversation? And that, this is why I'm saying when you read the Gospels, Jesus' life alone will blow your mind. Just look at how, what he says. The things he does. I mean, only, he could have only been God. Look what he says in this response. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal, physician, heal yourself. What well, we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet's acceptable or welcome in his own hometown. So Jesus basically goes, Hey, I know what you're thinking, by the way. They're like, you do? And he, and he says, Yeah, you know what? In self-defense... You don't like that I'm attacking your heart and I'm, I'm attacking the outward action. And so you're going, oh, hold on. We want proof. We want proof. You're the doctor. You can heal. You're going to do all this stuff. Prove it. And what they want is a sign, which is a miracle. They're going, hey, you know what you did out in Capernaum? All those crazy miracles. Can you do that? Can you, can you prove to us that that's like, that, that you're actually the Messiah, that you can actually do this? And he, here's the thing, guys. This is how we know it's just a smoke screen that will never work because it's never worked. You will never see one time, read your New Testament, you'll never see one time a Jewish leader go after his miracles and say that validates him. Because it's not what they really wanted. They just wanted to move on to something else because they were, God was infringing on the hard issue. Okay, they didn't like that. So like, I don't know, uh, do another miracle. Prove you can really do this. Do what you did down in Capernaum. They're self-righteous, filled with pride. They're defensive, and here's the thing. There's no confession of sin. There's no admittance that they need that. And, and the reason that is important to understand is Jesus doing miracles, they constantly ask for this. But does Jesus performing a miracle prove that he can do those four things? Think about that. Does him doing a solely a miracle prove that he can forgive sin, take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh? He can, he can actually transfer someone who's living in darkness into a new kingdom and a new family that he can rescue from hell. I would argue no. Not that alone. Listen, you can get all the TV evangelists up here. Let them do their whole gig. Let them do miracles, see people healed. I'm telling you, at the end of the day, that does not prove that Jesus can do what he is saying he came to do. You, you know how they could have known that Jesus was the Messiah who could forgive sin, give sight to the blind, liberate the captives? You know what they could have done? Gave him their sin. Confessed their sin and watched him heal men and forgive. Then they would have said, he can do this. I'm made new. I mean... You're going to see that throughout the Gospels, Jesus do that with people. And it's usually those with sin-stained pasts and messy lives who, who get it, plead for forgiveness. He shows them mercy and they walk away new. John 9, I was blind, now I see. He can do what he said he could do. Do you see how Jesus was attacking their religion? 
and they didn't like it. So much so they're ultimately going to try and kill Jesus by throwing him off a cliff, which they won't do because he's Jesus, so he kind of ninja vanishes or something and, and gets away. We're going to see that in a second. But this is so amazing. Not once will you see a Jewish leader say, hey, Jesus, you know, if you're really the Messiah, can you just go and, like, turn that tree into a human? You never see him do that. Hey, can you just fly around like Superman one more time? You never see him do that. You never see him ask for another miracle as proof. So we know historically in this, they're not looking for proof. They don't like what he's saying. They're just throwing up a smoke screen. And that's why Jesus will say to them, basically, you don't really get why I'm here. You don't really get it. You want me here for your wants, not my wants. So you want me as your busboy. You don't want me as master king lord. You want me as your slave. You want me to overthrow Herod. You want me to be king. You want me to fix all your problems. You want me to make much of you. I didn't come for that. I came to heal the sickness that's inside of you and then make much of me so that you'd worship me in light of what I do for you. And, and you see this happening right here. So they're just asking for another miracle. And so they were happy. Now they're defensive. And now they're going to get just angry. Okay? Look at what Jesus says. And what he says is brilliant. Verse 25. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and the great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers. That's one story, 1 Kings. Now he goes to 2 Kings. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha. Elisha followed Elijah. And none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Okay, let's get this. This is brilliant on Jesus' part. So as he knows, he knows what they're thinking, he knows what they're feeling because he's Jesus. So after he kind of addresses their self-righteousness and how they feel, he goes, hey, remember back in 1 Kings? Remember Elisha? Remember there were all those people dying? There was famine in the land? Do you remember who God showed grace and mercy to? Not an Israelite. A Phoenician. Zarephath. Do you, do you remember that? And they all knew that. Remember, she was like one of the enemies of God, lived, right? Not, not, a, not a person of God, right? Not, not of the nation of Israel. Oh, oh, remember 2 Kings? Remember Elisha who followed that up? Do you remember when there was leprosy going over? Nasty, just sores all over your body. Disgusting. No one wanted to get near him. Did, did, do you remember the king that God showed mercy and healed? Was it the Israelite king? No, it was actually Naaman, who was a Syrian king, who was an enemy against God's people. And remember, he tries to pay off. He's just going, I got I to gotta get healed. He tries to pay him off, and then he eventually gives to the prophet. He says, hey, go wash yourself in the Jordan. And he washed himself in the Jordan, and he's healed. God shows grace and mercy to someone outside the tribe of Israel. God shows grace and mercy to people who don't deserve grace and mercy. Wait, God shows grace and mercy to people who are an enemy of God? Precisely. So Jesus, as he's talking here, shows them as he's talking to religious people, which you have to see, who are saying, you're dirty, just like the widow and just like the leper. And you think all your external actions are building up for you a kingdom that you think is going to stand on the day of judgment and you're going to be found lacking powerful, right? Profound. <laughs> he must be God, right? I mean, what is, it's just amazing marveling at what he's saying, and what God is basically saying is, your religion will ultimately damn you apart from the provision and cleansing of the work and person of Jesus Christ. You need grace, mercy, and forgiveness, just like anybody else. That's always been the point. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned, you need provision. Right? You need animal skins. You need covering. You need forgiveness. You need blood, which will all be found in the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice for us. You'll see this all throughout the Scriptures. And so how do they respond to Jesus calling them out on their sin and on the religiosity that is actually damning them and not saving them? Furious. It says when he calls them out with the widow and the leper, they're filled with wrath. They're furious. 
Why? Why are they furious? Because part of it is they think they're the spiritual elite. And they like that God has always called them his people. And we know, right, that the gospel comes, and when Jesus comes, he inaugurates not just an Israelite thing, but a global thing. Gentiles are going to be saved, not just people of Jewish heritage. And they don't like this. And so they're filled with anger. They love their religion. They love their people more than they love Jesus. So Jesus goes after their goodness. Because we know even the best goodness are like what? Dirty dish chows? He says. Filthy rags. And they're so angry that they'd actually rather kill Jesus than find rescuing. They love being their own God. They love the idolatry of themselves and what they do. And religion, right, just for clarity, religion is just what you, you do for God to try to win him to you, right? Okay, I'm going to do these things to make him then maybe look at me more righteous and more favorably. No, no Christianity is about him giving you his righteous son, right? Religion is about you trying to climb up to God. Christianity is about Jesus coming down to you, rescuing you, saving you, forgiving you. And so they, they, they go to kill him. There are two ways you kill him, both by stoning. One, either literally pelt him with rocks or throw him off a cliff onto rocks. Those are the two ways you, they choose off the cliff onto rocks, right? So they, they start, we don't know how they got him out there. We don't know if they drug him. We don't know if they just kind of pushed him with the crowd, okay? But they eventually are making his way over there. And I want to make sure that you see something in here. After Jesus escapes, gets away, I want you to see something in this, in this, in this passage. I think Luke's showing us that everybody who chooses to reject Jesus, they all do it for the same reason. Everybody. It doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your belief system, everyone chooses to not believe Jesus as the Messiah for one reason. They don't believe in the sermon he just gave. They don't believe they're spiritually poor, spiritually blind, (coughs) spiritually oppressed, and spiritually enslaved. They don't believe it. They don't really believe it. They don't really believe they belittled the name of the God of the universe and sinned against his holy nature. They don't believe it. If they did, they would turn in repentance. They would ask for forgiveness. They would, they would see the mercy and grace they would need. And so, so what you're seeing here is the Jews in the synagogue, they could have known Jesus was the Messiah. Right after this, they could have said, yes, we want forgiveness. While we see that, man, you came for the spiritually poor, spiritually blind, spiritually oppressed, spiritually, you know, enslaved. Man, we need that. Like, we realize that even our good works are filthy rags. We, we need the salvation of the Messiah that was going to be the lamb that would come to atone for sin, be our substitute, be our sacrifice. We need that. He's not here for our wants. He's here for his wants and his will and his glory. So I'm bowing my knee. You're not my busboy. You're not my slave. Man, I'm in your allegiance. They could have said that. And what could they have seen? Him act as the Messiah and forgive and heal. Jesus, he goes on doing hundreds of miracles. Doesn't do anything. Hey, do another one. Do another one. It doesn't, that's not why they wanted a miracle. They just needed something to avoid the real issue. They didn't like that. And you see that in these people. And so, I just want to say there is one way for you and me to know that Jesus Christ is who he said he was in that sermon. And that is by us who understand our spiritual bankruptcy, handing our sin to God, and then staring at the amazing God-glorifying work in the person and work of Jesus. As you hand him your sin... You watch him become your sin, go to the cross, take on the full wrath of God for that sin, actually gift you his righteousness, put it in the grave, get out, ascend, give your Holy Spirit, adopt you into a family, call you righteous based on nothing you've done. Just He just forgave you for that. You, you saw how you were enslaved to your sin. You couldn't get out. You couldn't free yourself. You needed a risen Christ to do it. 
Okay, he couldn't just change behavior. You realize, wow, Jesus came not just for behavior change, but transformation. Wait, because hey, he consistently goes throughout the Gospels and looks at all the religious people, the outwardly clean. He goes, hey, your outward actions are awesome. Your heart, train wreck. Then he goes to the people whose outward actions are a train wreck. He goes, your heart, made clean. I mean, he shows throughout his ministry that this is what he's about. That only he can be the provision you need. And so you believe he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. That's how you became a Christian. Is you didn't just want Jesus to make much of you and do something for you. You became a Christian fundamentally because you believed you were spiritually poor. That you were bankrupt. You couldn't barter with God. You couldn't buy grace. I mean, that's how you became a Christian. I mean, you were spiritually blind. You couldn't see his goodness. You came in here, hated your Bible, didn't like the scriptures, didn't like anything else. You just loved going with culture, everything else. I mean, what Jesus says is nonsense. It's arrogant, ignorant. And all of a sudden, you love him. All of a sudden, you see his work, you see his goodness, you see his person, and you're, you're just worshipped into that. You're just grabbed into that. God just rescues you from yourself, puts you in his fold, and you glory his name because of what he's done. I mean, that, that's how you got saved. That's how he saved you. And, and so if you want to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you repent of your sin. You don't ask him to do more stuff. You turn to Christ. That's what he's always said. Repent. I mean, what was the first thing his forerunner said? Repent of your sins. Behold the Lamb of God. He's here to save the sins of the world. And that's how it happens. That we're not a big deal. He is. We're not a savior. He is. We can't rescue ourselves from ourselves. He can. And the resurrection power breaks those things in our <coughs> life. And so from this moment on... Everything Jesus will preach, teach, and engage in with people, you'll see repeatedly that as he goes throughout his ministry, particularly the religious Jewish followers, will see, wait a second, you didn't come the way I thought you should come. You're going to see that through the rest of his ministry. You'll see people confused. Wait, I thought this is why you were here. And he'll show over and over again, I came not to bring vengeance, I came to bring salvation. I came to rescue from sin. I came to do my Father's will, which is to seek and save that which was lost, Luke 19. So if you're a sinner in this room, you're in good company. Man, if, if you are broken, aware of your imperfection, aware of his holy nature, you are in good company. Because I am, and we all are, in desperate need of this, and we don't want people to hear things like Jesus says and respond like the Jewish people in the synagogue. I go, hold on a second. Mm. Now, I don't really need, like, cleansing and forgiveness, but I do want you to do something cool for me. Can you make much of me? Can you make me healthier, make me happy, fix my marriage? Do something else? I want that. Okay, he might. He might not. Why is he worthy? Not based upon what he does for you in that way, what he does for you in the eternal way, which is heal you from your deepest darkness, sickness, which is sin. I'm just going to end with just three questions. One of the Christian, one of the non, one of the religious, which really falls under the non-Christian. Okay, just, just to the person who is um, a non-Christian, just very simply, why do you reject Jesus? And I'm lovingly asking that. I'm not fighting with you. Is it, is it because you want him on your terms? Is it because you don't like what he's asked of you? Is it you want to make much of you and you be the king of your heart? You be the God of your throne? Is it you don't trust the God of the universe and his design how things should work and, and, and happen and you trust your own? What is it? Why, why do you push back? Why do you resist? Why do you not want him? Is it because maybe he infringes on your desires? You really want him to make much of you and heal you and fix you and if he doesn't do that, then you're out of the clause somehow? So it's a contract, it's not covenant. Because the Bible says, the scriptures will say, that Christ enters into a covenant that he keeps, not based upon what you do, but what he does. That frees you to enjoy him. And all I want to say is he's a, he's a good God, he's a good master, he's for your joy. Turn to Christ and trust him. Grab hold of the forgiveness that's in the cross of Christ. Um, if you're this morning, you're just really religious, and you might not think you are, but you are. And man, you, you tithe regularly. You show up to church. You give to nonprofits. You love your neighbor well. Like I said, you bring in the trash can. You might wash their car sometimes. You've got this checklist of all those things that make you righteous, make you good. Right? 
do you think that that's going to hold up on the day of judgment against a perfectly, infinitely holy, righteous God? It won't. Do you think that somehow you need to do all those things, but you don't need Jesus? Or you add Jesus to all those things? It's Jesus, period. Some of what you do. Now, if you do submit to his allegiance authority, it will bear fruit in your life. You will then look different. You will then live different. You will not live a perfect life. You will not live a sinless life, but you will live a repentant life. One that daily repents of sin, turns back to Christ, enjoys his forgiveness and righteousness in the cross. Because I've said this before, religion only leads one of two places, arrogance or despair. Arrogance, because you follow all of God's laws, so you feel really arrogant and proud, that doesn't work. Or despair, because you try to keep all his laws, you can't do it, so you just get sad. It's a bad way to live. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ is the evening ground that says, no, all are made righteous because of my son. Trust in Jesus, not what you do, not your religion. And then lastly, to the Christian, if you're in here and you love Jesus, you repent of your sin, that, that marks you as a lifestyle, you submit to his authority, his allegiance, you, you ask him for help, you're not perfect, you're fallen, but you're redeemed by his blood, and you, and you want him to make much of himself and not much of you, I would just say, can just enjoy him this morning. Just enjoy gazing at his finished work for you. I need that the second I leave these doors today because everything else is going to vie for affirmation, approval, worth, significance. Will you just enjoy him this morning? Stare at his work. Praise him that you were one of these people who he enabled you to see what he was saying, to see truth. You were blind, you can see that you were spiritually bankrupt and you couldn't barter with him and he gave you grace. He gave you himself. You were enslaved to your sin. He freed you from that. You were held captive and oppressed, and he gave you rest. Thank him this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you that you're a good God who is uh, amazing in all that you do. God, God, thank you that you offer salvation to sinners. God, thank you that you came not just to do what we want. We know that would never be the best thing. But historically and consistently, you've always come to do it because of it's who you are. You do what you know is right and will give you most glory. So God, we praise you for that. God, I pray for those in this room, if there are any who do not love you, have rejected you, that, God, they turned to Christ. They would turn to you. They would worship you. God, help us not to get sidetracked on the wrong hills to wander on. God, help us to to fight for the truth, to love our neighbor, to be good witnesses and missionaries where you've placed us. God, comfort us in this moment, reminding us that we're we're sojourners, we're exiles, we're citizens of another kingdom. God, we'll never live here and have it feel right. It doesn't matter if we had every legislation put that morally made us live the same. It wouldn't matter. It wouldn't fix anything. It wouldn't fix the problem that you came to fix, which is sin, the nature of sin. God, I pray as we respond in taking Lord's Supper, which is your body, your blood, that we remember as the symbol of what you did for us on this cross, that we'd enjoy it this morning. We'd enjoy remembering and celebrating the finished work of Jesus, your blood that was shed, your body that was broken, to ransom and rescue and redeem us back to yourself. God, form us as a people, as a church. It's for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.